Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. I'm Bob, and I'm reading today from Spurgeon's Sermons on Sovereignty. By the way, you can get this whole set yourself on the Puritan hard drive. You need to check with the people at Stillwater's Revival Books at puritandownloads.com. We're going to begin a new message today. We're talking, all of these messages are on sovereignty, but different aspects of it. We're talking about prevenient grace. He'll explain what that is, I believe. This was delivered at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington, London, in England. And his text is Galatians 1.15. When it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me. You all know the story of the Apostle Paul. He had been a persecutor and went armed with letters to Damascus to hail men and women and drag them to prison. On the road there, he saw a light exceeding bright above the brightness of the sun, and a voice spoke out of heaven to him, saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? By this miraculous interposition, he was converted. Three days he spent in darkness, but when Ananias came to tell him of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there fell from his eyes, as it were, scales. He, he was baptized, became the most mighty of all Christian teachers, and could truly say that he was not a whit behind the very chief of the apostles. And Paul's conversion is generally considered so very remarkable for its suddenness and distinction, and truly it is. Yet, at the same time, it's no exception to the general rule of conversions, but is rather a type or a model or pattern of the way in which God shows forth his long-suffering to them that are led to believe on him. It appears from my text, however, that there is another part of Paul's history which deserves our attention quite as much as the suddenness of his conversion, namely, the fact that although he was suddenly converted, Yet God had had thoughts of mercy towards him from his very birth. God did not begin to work with him when he was on the road to Damascus. That was not the first occasion on which eyes of love had darted upon this chief of sinners. But he declares that God had separated him and set him apart even from his mother's womb, that he might by and by be called by grace and have Jesus Christ revealed in him. I selected this text not so much for its own sake as to give me an opportunity for saying a little this evening upon a doctrine not often touched upon, namely that of prevenient grace, or the grace which comes before regeneration and conversion. I think we sometimes overlook it. We do not attach enough importance to the grace of God in its dealings with men, before he actually brings them to himself. Paul says that God had designs of love toward him even before he had called him out of the dead world into spiritual life. So to begin, let us talk for a little while upon the purpose of God preceding saving grace, as it may clearly be seen developing itself in human history. You generally judge what a man's purpose is by his actions. If you saw a man very carefully making molds in sand, if you then 
watched him take several pieces of iron and melt them down, and if you further noticed him running the melted iron into the molds, you might not know precisely what class of machine he was making, but you would very justly conclude that he was making some part of an engine or or other machinery, a beam or a lever or a crank or a, or a wheel. And according to what you saw the molds in the sand to be, you would form your idea of what the man was intending to make. Now, when I look at the life of a man, even before conversion, I think I can discover something of God's molding and fashioning in him, even before regenerating grace comes into his heart. Let me give you an illustration of my course of thought. When God created man, we're told in the book of Genesis, he made him out of the dust of the earth. Mark him beneath his maker's hand, the framework of a man, the tabernacle for an immortal soul, a man made of clay, fully made, I suppose, and perfect in all respects excepting one, and that soon followed. For after God had formed him out of the dust, then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now, it strikes me that during the early part of the history of the people whom God means to save, though they have not received into their hearts any spiritual life, nor experienced any of the work of regeneration, yet their life before conversion is really a working of them in the clay. Let's endeavor to bring this out more distinctly. Can you not perceive God's purpose in the Apostle Paul when you think of the singular gifts with which he was endowed? Here was a man, a, a rhetor rhetorician, a, a so noble that there are in his works passages of eloquence, not to be equaled, much less excelled, by Demosthenes and Cicero. As a logician, his arguments are most conclusive as well as profound. Never had man such an eagle eye to pierce into the depths of a matter. Never had man such an eagle wing to mount up into its sublimities. He argues out questions so abstruse that at all times they've been the battlegrounds of controversies, and yet he seems to perceive them clearly and distinctly and to unfold and expound them with a precision of language not to be misunderstood. All apostles of Jesus Christ put together are not equal to Paul in the way of teaching. Truly, he might have said of them all, you, you are but as children compared with me. Peter dashes and dashes gloriously against the adversary, but Peter cannot build up nor instruct. Like the great apostle of the Gentiles, he has to say himself of Paul's writings that they contain some things hard to be understood. Peter can confirm, but scarcely can he understand Paul, for where intellect is concerned, Paul is far, far above him. Paul seems to have been endowed by God with one of the most massive brains that ever filled human cranium, and to have been gifted with an intellect which towered far above anything that we find elsewhere. Had Paul been merely a natural man, I do not doubt but what he would take the place either of Milton among the poets or of Bacon among the philosophers. He was indeed 
and in truth a, a mastermind. Now, when I see such a man as this, cast by God in the mold of nature, I ask myself, what is God about? What is he doing here? As every man has a purpose, so also has God. And I think I see in all this that God foreknew that such a man was necessary to be raised up as a vessel through whom he might convey to the world the hidden treasures of the gospel, that such a man was needful so that God might speak his great things by him. You will say probably that God reveals great things by fools. I beg your pardon. God did once permit an ass to speak, but it was a very small thing that he said, for any ass might readily have said it. Whenever there is a wise thing to be said, a wise man is always chosen to say it. Look the whole Bible through. You'll find that the revelation is always congruous to the person to whom it is given. You do not find Ezekiel blessed with a revelation like that of Isaiah. Ezekiel is all imagination, therefore he must soar on the eagle's wing. Isaiah is all affection and boldness, and therefore he must speak with evangelical fullness. God does not give Nahum's revelation to the herdsman Amos. The herdsman Amos cannot speak like Nahum, nor can Nahum speak like Amos. Each man is after his own order, and a man of this masterly order of mind, like the Apostle Paul, must have been created, it seems to me, for no other end than to be the appropriate means of revealing to us the fullness and the blessing of the gospel of peace. Mark again the Apostle's education. Paul was a Jew, not half Greek and half Jew, but a pure Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, speaking still the Jews' native tongue, and not a stranger to the ancient speech of Israel. There was nothing in the traditions of the Jews which Paul did not know and, and understand. He was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. The best master of the age is selected to be the master of the hopeful young scholar, and the school in which he is placed must be a rabbinical one. Now, just observe in this the purpose of God. Paul's lifelong struggle was to be with Jewish superstition. In Iconium, in Lystra, in Derby, in Athens, in Corinth, in Rome, he must always be confronting the Judaizing spirit, and it was well that he should know all about it, that he should be well schooled in it. And it does strike me that God separated him from his mother's womb on purpose that he might go forth to proclaim the gospel instead of law and shut the mouths of those who were constantly abiding by the traditions of the fathers instead of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All this, remember, was going on while as yet he was unconverted, though he was even then, as we see, being prepared for his work. Then observe the spiritual struggles through which Paul passed. I take it that mental struggles are often a more important part of education than what a man learns from his schoolmaster. What is learned here in my heart is often of more use to me than what can be put into my head by another. Paul seems to have had a mind 
bent upon carrying out what he believed to be right. To serve God appears to have been the great ambition, the one object of the apostle's life. Even when he was a persecutor, he says he thought he was doing God's service. He was no groveler after wealth. Never in his whole lifetime was Paul a mammonite. He was no mere seeker after learning, never. He was learned, but it was all held and used subject to what he deemed far more highly, the indwelling grace of God. Even before he knew Christ, he had a sort of religion and an attachment and an earnest attachment, too, to the God of his fathers, though it was a zeal not according to knowledge. He had his inward fightings and fears and struggles and difficulties, and all these were educating him to come out and talk to his fellow sinners and lead them up out of the darkness of Judaism into the light of Christianity. And then what I like in Paul, and, and that which leads me to see the purpose of God in him, is the singular formation of his mind. Even as a sinner, Paul was great. He was the chief of sinners, just as he afterwards became not a whit behind the very chief of the apostles. There are some of us who are such little men that the world will never see us. The old proverb about the chips and porridge giving one pleasure either way might apply to a great many people, but never to Paul. If there was anything to be done, Paul would do it. Aye, and if it came to the stoning of Stephen, he says he gave his vote against him. Though he was not one of the actual executioners, yet we are told that the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. He would do all that was to be done and was a thoroughgoing man everywhere. Believing a thing to be right, Paul never consulted with flesh and blood, but girded up his loins and wrought with the whole powers of his being, and that was no mean force as his enemies felt to their cost. Why, as I see him riding to Damascus, I picture him with eyes flashing with fanatic hate against the disciples of the man whom he thought to be an impostor, while his heart beat with the determination to crush the followers of the Nazarene. Now, he's a man all energy and all determination. And when he's converted... He's only lifted into a higher life, but unchanged as to temperament, nature, and force of character. He seems to have been constituted naturally a thoroughgoing, thorough-hearted man, in order that when grace did come to him, he might be just as earnest, just as dauntless and fearless in the defense of what he believed to be right. Yes, and such a man was wanted, needed, to lead the vanguard in the great crusade against the God of this world. No other could have stood forward thus as Paul did, for no other had the same firmness, boldness, and decision that he possessed. But I, I hear someone say, was not Peter as bold? Yes, he was. Uh, but Peter, you remember, always had the, the falling of being, or the failing of of being just where he ought not to be when he was needed. Peter was unstable to the very last, I think. Certainly in Paul's day, Paul had to withstand him. 
Oh, he was a great and good man, but not fitted to be the foremost. Perhaps you say, well, but there's John. Would not John do? No, we cannot speak in too high terms of John, but John is too full of affection. John is the, the plane to smooth the timber, but not the axe to cut it down. John is too gentle, too meek. He's the Philip Melanchthon, but Paul must be the Luther and Calvin rolled into one. Such a man was needed, and I say that from his very birth, God was fitting him for this position. Before he was converted, prevenient grace was thus engaged, fashioning, molding, and preparing the man, in order that by and by there might be put into his nostrils the breath of life. Now, what is the drift of all this? A practical one. And to show you what it is, I will stay a minute here before we go on to anything else. Some of the good fathers amongst us are mourning very bitterly just now over their sons. Your children do not turn out as you wish they would. They're getting skeptical, some of them, and they're also falling into sin. Well, dear friends, it is yours to mourn. It is enough to make you weep bitterly, but let me whisper a word into your ear. Do not sorrow as those who are without hope, for God may have very great designs to be answered, even by these very young men who seem to be running so altogether in the wrong direction. I do not think I could go so far as John Bunyan did when he was said he was he said he was sure God would have some eminent saints in the next generation because the young men in his day were such gross sinners that he thought they would make fine saints. And when the Lord came and saved them by his mercy, they would love him much because they had had so much forgiven. I would hardly like to say so much as that, but I do believe that sometimes in the inscrutable wisdom of God, when some of those who have been skeptical come to see the truth, they are the very best men that could possibly be found to do battle against the enemy. Some of those who have fallen into error, after having passed through it and happily come up from its deep ditch, are just the men to stand and warn others against it. I cannot conceive that Luther would have ever been so mighty a preacher of the faith if he had not himself struggled up and down Pilate's staircase on his knees when trying to get to heaven by his penances and his good works. Oh, let us have hope. We do not know but what God may be intending yet to call them and bless them. Who can tell? There may be a young man here tonight who will one day be the herald of the cross in China, in Hindustan, in Africa, and in the islands of the sea. Remember John Williams wishing to keep an appointment with another young man who committed a certain sin. He wanted to know what time it was and, and so just stepped into Moorfield's chapel. Someone saw him and he did not like to go out and the word preached by Mr. Timothy East, who still survives among us, fell on his ears and the young sinner was made a saint. And you all know how he afterwards perished as a martyr on the shores of Eramanga. Why may there not be another uh, such a case tonight? There may be some young man here uh, 
who has been receiving a first-class education. He has no idea what for. He's been learning a multitude of things, perhaps a great deal, which it would be much better if he did not know. But the Lord is meaning to make something of him. I do not know where you are, young man, but, oh, I wish I could fire you tonight with a high ambition to serve God. What is the good of my being made at all if I don't serve my Maker? What is the use of my being here if I do not bring any glory to him who put me in and keeps me here? Why, I had better have been a, a piece of rotten dung strewn upon the field and bringing forth something for the farmer's use than to have been a mere consumer of bread and meat and to have breathed the air and lived upon God's bounty and yet to have nothing for him. O oh, young man, if such an army of you as we have tonight could by divine grace say with the Apostle Paul, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, why, there would be hope for old England yet. We would yet fling popery back to the seven hills whence it came. Oh, that God would grant us this blessing. But if he should not be pleased to call all of us by his grace, yet may some here live to prove that they were separated from their mother's womb to God's work, and set apart that they might have the Son of God revealed in them, and might proclaim his gospel with power. We will now leave this point, but shall continue the same subject in another form. Now that's the end of part one. It's a little bit shorter today, a little longer tomorrow. We we can't put them both together, though, and, and leave here at any reasonable time. So uh, he's going to talk t tomorrow about grace preceding calling in another sense. We'll talk about it then. And I can't wait, frankly, to find it out myself. Hey, we have the works of other great men of God on this site. I read their works. I read their uh, their lives in some cases. We have the whole autobiography, a four-volume set of 1,600 pages right here uh, on Sermon Audio uh, in audio form took a while to do it. It'll take you a while to get through it, but you'll be blessed if you try it. North Korea audios are here by the hundreds. We've got a study on the Quran, a study on Muhammad, a study on prophecy, a whole through the Bible, a study. And twice we go through the whole Bible. Commentaries on different books of the Bible. And 51 books available. If you'll just click on store, you'll see what I mean. Browse through those 51 titles, and each one of them is available when you get to Amazon for just $1, or you can buy the paper book, paperback. Also, I have a disc, a two-set disc, a two-disc set that has all 51 books on it that I will give you for $10, and you just click on Give up above and click on on uh, the word 10, or the number 10, put your address in, and I'll get those right to you. Facebook, go to my timeline. Um, I know Facebook is not in great uh, popularity among believers these days, and I don't blame you. And We may be leaving Facebook also. I hope a whole lot of Christians will leave it and, and let it just die a natural death. But while there are still people to reach through Facebook, we'll stay there for a while. Criesfromamongus.com is a blog that I put together, and you can check that out. And in YouTube... You would just type in Bob from Hackberry House, and there are 
A lot of the things that we've put here on Sermon Audio are now in video form. Doing something right now on the, the King James Bible controversy, especially when it comes to the King James only people. Uh, you might want to take a look at the videos. And then at Zoom, men, send me an email in your testimony, a little bit of it, and I will send you an invitation to join us on Saturday nights at 7 p.m. Central Time, Chicago Time. If you do that, you have to have a Zoom the Zoom app on your phone or computer. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, um, maybe you could ask ask someone. <laughs> okay, but uh, it's a it's a very popular thing that people are doing all over the world, especially during COVID, because the fellowship must continue. We need men getting together in particular. Okay, that's it. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun, and Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.